Father, we ask now that your word would go forth not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. God, we pray you would work in us that which is pleasing to you. God, we pray that, that you would. Uh, we want to knock on this door again that, that Calvin just led us to knock on. We bring this request to you again that you would sanctify us. God, and we also ask that you would um, cause life to come from death and cause light to shine in darkness and that you would cause some to see the light of your glory shining in the face of your son Jesus and that they would turn to him as the Savior. God, I pray you would convince us all more deeply of your goodness through this message and I pray that you would help us to think about you more truly and to have more um, sweet and deep affections for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we started last week a short series in the first chapters of Genesis, specifically to answer the question, what is man? What is man? And we're doing this before we start another series going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Next will be Ecclesiastes. We're doing this because the spirit of the age today is warring against a biblical understanding of humanity, and the effects are devastating. It, it leads to so much human misery and sin, and we need to know the truth about mankind, and the God who made us has told us that truth. Last week, we looked at the first thing we need to know about humanity. And that is that God made man in His image. There's no greater honor or blessing that God could have bestowed on man than that, than to make us in His image. According to Genesis, being made in God's image means we were made to reflect God's glorious character and to rule over God's good creation and to relate to Him as a generous, loving Father. And so I said last week that the truth about who we are is far better than any of the world's falsehoods about mankind. But that's not all the Bible explains about us. A biblical view of man teaches us also to see that we are, in another sense, actually worse than the world might accuse us of being. Uh, that the world today might accuse me of being you know, subconsciously racist and bigoted and, and things like that. And, and while I don't accept that necessarily as true, I really shouldn't get too offended because the Bible rightly accuses me of being something worse. A sinner against a good and holy God. Guilty. Only the Bible can help us understand both the incredible dignity of every person and the shocking depravity of every person. A philosopher, Blaise Pascal, wrote about the paradox of the greatness and wretchedness of man. And he argued only Christianity can account for both. He said, the greatness and the wretchedness of man are so evident that true religion must necessarily teach us both that there is in man some great source of greatness and a great source of wretchedness. 
it must then give us a reason for these astonishing contradictions. And God's Word gives us those reasons and explains the paradox that is man in this fallen age. Every person bears God's image, and every person possesses a sinful nature. We learned last week God made us His image bearers. So did God make us sinners? No. Genesis teaches God made man totally good out of His own total goodness and as little reflections of it. And if you look at the last verse of Genesis 1 in your Bible, Genesis 1 verse 31, it tells us right after God made man, God saw everything He had made and behold, it was very good. And six times before in Genesis 1, God saw what He created was good. And now this thing that ratchets up God's evaluation of his creation from being good to very good is him looking down from heaven and seeing how he made man in his image and saying, very good. God made man good. How shocking then to read later in the Bible that God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3. Now, that happened not long after creation. Genesis 6, verse 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Here comes a radical statement. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Mantine was, was, he was totally good, but then became totally depraved. Meaning not that he became as bad as he could possibly be, but, but that no part of man was free from inclinations toward evil and, and the consequences of that. You cannot have a true understanding of humanity, of yourself or of others, unless you get this. And Genesis 2 is where we need to start. Genesis 2 is, is a slow motion replay of sorts of creation day 6. Here we see the process by which God made man and the place he put them and all the provisions he gave them. And, and seeing all of that will make us agree with God and say, this is very good. And that's our first main point today, God's lavish goodness. God's lavish goodness. Look at Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Well, here's the, the first act of God's great goodness to mankind. It's the gift of life itself, the breath of life. Every single breath that you take in and let out is a direct gift of God's grace and goodness. Everyone. 
Now, Genesis 1 also called the animals living creatures made by God, like this verse does man. But back then, we weren't told that any of them became living beings in quite this same way. When God made man as a living creature, the picture is of him personally stooping down and breathing into man's nostrils. God made man to know him face to face, like a man knows his friend who shares his likeness. Now see what God did next for man in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Uh, This word garden here, translated in the Greek Old Testament, is paradise. So you shouldn't think of the garden that's struggling in your neighbor's backyard. This is a garden paradise. An an ancient royal garden that a king would commission, not just for provisions, but for great pleasure too. And the name of this place where the garden was, was Eden. That's a Hebrew word that means delight or pleasure or even luxury or delicacy, depending on the context. Well, what does it teach you about God's good will that immediately after he brought man to life, he went to work planting a paradise garden in a land called delight and put the man there? He didn't give man a map and say, figure out how to get there. He put him there. God didn't skimp on the furnishings either. Look at verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God put every tree that was beautiful to look at there. Every tree that was good for food. Is what the verse said. See, God's heart is to withhold no good thing from His people. He is not restrictive or tight-fisted. He did not hold back anything that might promote man's happiness and blessedness. And obviously, Adam and Eve had earned none of this. It was all free, all of grace. And Psalm 84 tells us that this unbounded, generous Goodness is part of God's unchanging character. He's still this way and always will be. Psalm 84, 10 and 11. The psalmist writes, Outside of the garden, a day in God's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. So the glimpse of God that we get in the garden is still true of him. Unlimited goodness. In the midst of the garden was the tree of life. We're not told much about it here. But the next chapter of Genesis tells us that through this tree, God purposed to grant immortality, life forever. And God put this incredible gift right in the middle of the garden of delight that he designed for the man. Eternal life within reach. And somewhere... By that life-giving tree was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're told more about that tree a little later in this chapter. But first we get more details about Eden. Look down at verse 10. It says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. 
And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So these precious stones and this great river that waters the, the whole wider world, both of those things show God's lavish goodness to man, and especially when we understand these things in light of later Scripture. Uh, gold and onyx are stones used to build the later tabernacle and temple, the special dwelling place of God with man. And these precious stones were also used in the garments that the high priest would wear to go into that special place of God's presence. And the great river actually connects with that same theme in the Bible. The prophet Ezekiel, at the end of his book, has a vision of this huge, great new temple. And and from it flows a great river that waters the wider area and brings forth all kinds of life and food and, and healing. And the prophet Zechariah also has a vision of the Lord coming to Jerusalem and from his presence and his reign as king there. Living waters flow out to the east and to the west. And then the book of Revelation ends with the new Jerusalem, the new holy place where God dwells with man, and it's covered with precious jewels, and the throne of God is there. And flowing out from the throne is the river of the water of life, and the tree of life is on either side of of the river. So, the great river flowing out of Eden, and the precious stones all around, all this helps us to see the Garden of Eden as a special holy place where God is present to dwell with man. It's like a garden tabernacle and a paradise temple where God would walk with man and have fellowship with him in his presence. And, And we saw last week in verse 15, this further paints the Garden of Eden like a temple. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Work and keep. Remember what we said about that. Now, that's the same charge God later gave to the priests who would serve in the tabernacle, those who would get to worship Him in His presence, in the holy place. So here's the picture. God planted this garden of delight, ultimately, to be a, a sacred space where man could enjoy holy fellowship with God. God is not the kind of God who holds back good or who holds back himself. Lavish goodness. And what he told man after placing him in Eden further indicates this. Look at verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now don't gloss over the first half of that command. Verse 16 says, you may surely eat, and actually may is maybe not strong enough. Uh, the same sentence form is found at the end of verse 17 when it says, you shall, you shall surely die. Same construction earlier. So we could translate verse 16, you shall surely eat of every tree. 
That was part of God's command. And and the verse said, the Lord commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree. Adam, I command you to eat everything that's good for food here. That's a good command. What about that second part, verse 17? Is that good? That all depends on your fundamental view of God and His goodness. you read on that, as we shall soon see. But let me say, uh, for now, don't be fooled. It was a very good command. Making this one tree off-limits, that was one important way, actually, that God was giving Himself to the man and the woman He had made. And here's how. That this prohibition against this one tree was a way for man to self-consciously trust in God as the source of wisdom. And it would always remind man that above everything else that God had made, supreme satisfaction was found in God Himself and knowing Him and trusting Him and walking with Him and not enjoying His gifts apart from Him. So even this uh, prohibition was designed by God to secure man's highest happiness and good uh, because of how it could stir in man deliberate faith and satisfaction in God. Now, this is important. It's important to hear these are commands given in paradise. Commands, commandments are not incompatible with lavish goodness. You've got a wrong view of God's law if you don't believe that. God's commands are further gifts of His goodness. They're not enemies of of grace. They're expressions of grace. They're they're good gifts that, that are meant to lead us to the enjoyment of all good things and to keep us from anything that would hinder our ultimate good. And and these first commands illustrate that so well. Adam, thou shalt eat from every tree except only this one that will kill you. Now in verse 18, God finds something incomplete in his garden, which was not good. Look there. Uh, Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Yeah, we see once again, God's heart is to withhold no good thing. So immediately he begins to remedy this aloneness right before the man's eyes. And uh, he brings animals before Adam first, really to, to help Adam know how good he has it and how good God is when he finally forms Eve. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, And every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man... He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now we'll spend more time on those verses next week, but for this week, I want you to see just, just how good this arrangement was. Uh, that last verse, they're, they're not self-conscious before one another. They're not suspicious of each other. They're not worried in the slightest about being fully accepted by the other. They share perfect openness and vulnerability and safety and unity and love. And so this was God's uh, masterful finishing touch in His good garden, a garden He designed in every way to be good for man and woman whom he made good in his image. Now, you may be wondering if this sermon really is what I said it it was about in the beginning. I said this would be about man's depravity, and we've spent all this time talking about God's goodness. God's lavish goodness is the necessary backdrop for understanding our sinfulness. You, You will never know how evil our sin is unless you see how good God has always been. You won't ever feel even the sting of your own sin such that you come to really repent of it with godly sorrow to God unless you see God's astounding goodness to you and see your sin as a response to that. As we see in Genesis 3. And we can say more. You won't trust Him as your Lord. You can't delight in His commandments. You won't look to Him as your all-satisfying treasure unless and until you taste and see that God is good. And you believe that everything He sovereignly does is good. Good, and that every word he says is good, and that he withholds no good thing from his own. Ask God to teach you that. Well, in this sacred garden, how did man become evil? That's the question. And first, he began to question God's goodness. That's our next main point, questioning God's goodness. An intruder comes into Eden who puts that question in their minds. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now clearly this isn't just a normal snake. It talks. Uh, This is Satan in the form of a serpent or possessing one, perhaps. Later, Scripture describes him as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, Revelation 12, 9. And what's his great strategy for leading mankind into evil? Listen to this if if you're going to withstand his temptation. His strategy is to question God's goodness. Oh, so subtly. Just asking a question? 
not directly accusing God of anything yet. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? He's sowing seeds of doubt about God's goodness by asking a question that made God seem very restrictive and and stingy. Did Did I hear that right? That God made all of these beautiful trees only to say, uh, these aren't for you. Really? Actually? So Satan tempts man to evil by trying to make us think God is a God who holds out on us and, and isn't as good as He could be to us. So, He can't be fully trusted if you want what's best for you. Now, still today, 1 Timothy 4, for example, says that it is deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons that would religiously forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. And Paul says that that's deceitful and and demonic because everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Satan wants you to adopt a false view of God that restricts your view of His lavish goodness and and makes you think that God's way keeps us from maximal good and joy. It isn't true. He withholds no good thing by His commands, His warnings, and all His providential dealings with us, even outside of the garden. But, but if you start to doubt that, you are climbing inside of a human cannon that can launch you into all kinds of evil. When the woman answers Satan, there are hints in her words that the serpent's lie has started to poison her. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. See, she added to God's prohibition, neither shall you touch it. God never said that. She expanded the boundaries of what God said was off limits. And so she shrunk God's goodness. She also admitted the word all or every from God's original command. He said, you shall surely eat from every tree in the garden. Eve only said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So see, Satan suggests this this ludicrous restriction of God's goodness. But Eve answers him also with a restricted view of God's goodness, doesn't she? It was slight, but, but her view of God's abundant generosity has started to get smaller. She is, as one man put it, magnifying the restraint upon her, perhaps signaling she's already leaning in the direction the serpent is pushing her, that God is not overabundantly generous. He's frugal in His goodness, miserly in some degree. And and it seems Satan sensed that his lie found a little foothold in Eve's heart, Uh, and, and he hoped that, that the hook he had cast had, had caught hold in her heart. And so next, he pulls hard. He goes for it. He, he outright accuses God of lying and of having ulterior motives. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows 
that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, that's the bag of lies that still leads humanity into sin against God. What's the lie? God's commands are not good. God's warnings of judgment are not good. His words are not true. He can't be trusted. He does not have your highest good at heart. His warnings are just vain threats to control you, to keep doing what He commands, which, are, which commands are actually designed to benefit Him at your expense. Do you know why God says, thou shalt not? Satan says, it's because he's keeping good from you for his own gain. He wants to keep you in the dark, to keep you from being as happy and wise as you could be. So if you follow God's words, you're missing out. God is keeping good from you. Satan wants us to view God like a Scrooge-like oppressive rival instead of a generous, loving father in everything that he does and says. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson wrote about what happened here in Eden and its effects. He said, Eve sees God's law, but she has lost sight of the true God behind it. Abstracting his law from his loving and generous person, she's deceived into hearing the law only as a negative deprivation and not the wisdom of a heavenly father. This is the distortion, the lie about God that has entered the bloodstream of the human race. It is the poison that mutates into rebellion against God. Scratch anyone who's not a Christian. And this, whatever they may say, is their heart disposition, a restricted heart disposition towards God that views Him through a lens of negative law that obscures the broader context of the Father's character of holy love. And this is a fatal sickness. Verse 6 then records the saddest moment in human history. It's the beginning of mankind's evil. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And, and that is the single spark that burned the whole house down. A single breach in God's good order that, that unleashed a tidal wave of evil and suffering that has flooded the world ever since and, and has corrupted your thinking and your desires and your will. And it happened after Adam and Eve had satanic doubts about God's goodness. And you can almost feel that when you read verse 6. She, she is fixating on what is forbidden. Not everything that God has generously given but this that God has forbidden has become her world. And she saw it's good for food. Is God withholding good from me? She saw it's a delight to the eyes. Is God withholding good from me? It's desirable to make one wise. Is God withholding good from me? And she decided, I guess he is. And so they ate. 
despite the abundant provision all around them, despite the gift of God's fellowship with them in this place. She saw, verse 6, that the tree seemed good for food, but Genesis 2.9 said God made every tree that was good for food in the garden and gave it all to man. She saw here in verse 6, the tree was a delight to the eyes, but 2.9 told us God made every tree pleasant to the sight for man to enjoy. There was nothing special about the way this tree might taste or look. The special thing was that it was forbidden. There was no lack of beautiful trees or good fruits. God had given a perfect abundance. But she stopped. Here's the thing. She stopped looking at this one boundary that God set up as part of the bigger picture of God's lavish goodness and abundant generosity and His free grace and His beautiful glory and, and His fatherly love. And you need to watch over your heart diligently to see that you do not start to ever do the same with any boundary that you hear from God's word that doesn't make immediate sense to you. Man stopped being good when he stopped trusting that God was. Now, someone might say, it would be a whole lot easier for me to trust God's goodness if God gave me these uh, Edenic gifts, a garden of delight, a perfect marriage. But if you're thinking that, you're, you're thinking too highly of yourself and thinking too lowly of what God has given you. Could God be more good to you than He has been? Could God give more to you, greater to you than he has given. The triune God has given for you and to you everything that he has within himself to give, his son and his spirit. What we sing is true. There is no more for heaven now to give. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, to save ungrateful sinners. God sent His Son and His Spirit. So the, the gospel, that, that's the antidote to this old satanic view of God that threatens our hearts, that God withholds good. No, God sent His Son to die on a cross and rise again to rescue us from our sin and from all its consequences, from, from all suffering one day, from all His just judgments, and God says He gives us every true blessing in His Son by the Spirit. Romans 8.32 teaches us how to undermine Satan's garden lie with the gospel. It says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him, with His Son, graciously give us all things? If God gave His Son, it has to be true that He withholds no good thing. So faith in the gospel should, should obliterate 
the suspicion that grows in your heart that God is restricted in His goodness towards you. In Christ, God has made a way for sinners to get back to the river of God's delights and and to be part of the most perfect marriage forever, the loving union of Christ and His bride, the sinners for whom He died. Turn from your sin, trust in Christ, what He did to save sinners, Trust in this good news of God's unlimited goodness and, and let it expel from you the poisonous lie of the devil that God is not good. Now we need to go a step further though to understand man's fall into depravity and what causes man's depravity still today. Uh, it's this. When man stopped trusting God was good, he started deciding for himself what was. When man stopped trusting God was good, he started deciding for himself what was. That's the next main point, self-determining goodness. When verse 6 says that Eve saw the tree was desired to make one wise, we're supposed to connect that to the devil's words in verse 5. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing, wisdom, good and evil. That's the wisdom that was on her mind. Now, this, of course, this is a a vile deception of Satan. But he's crafty, he's good at evil, and so the lie was a half-truth. This act of rebellion did make them, in a sense, like God, as knowers of good and evil, but not in a way that made them wise or did them any good. Look down at verse 22 of verse 3. You see the Lord affirm what happened when they disobeyed. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Well, what does that mean? It means mankind arrogated to himself the godlike prerogative of deciding what is good and evil. Man became like God in the sense that he, he treated himself like his own God, who would decide for himself what was good, instead of accepting God's declarations about what was good and what was not. So the knowledge of good and evil in this context is, is moral autonomy, determining for oneself right and wrong, independent of God, lo- looking to self as the ultimate knower of good and evil, instead of trusting God's revealed will, that that's what's determinative of of what is right and good and good for me. It's a declaration of independence from God, as John Piper put it, in deciding what is good. And that's how man became totally depraved. Despite God's lavish goodness, mankind questioned God's goodness, and so they decided they must determine for themselves what is goodness and what happens when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. I hope you see this sin was far more than a simple little bite of a fruit. It was grasping for the knowledge of good and evil. It was grasping to be like God, being the highest moral authority, to to be the ultimate lawgiver and judge and and arbiter of goodness and wickedness. 
And God had already honored man so much. God made man in his image, in his likeness. But then man, in extreme pride, reached for a a wrongful likeness to God. A God-replacing likeness to God. To make himself the high expert on ultimate good over and against what God was saying. do, Do you see how all other sins flow from this one? It's not some random connection between this and all other evil. This is the real root. Man acting like his own God, determining for himself what is good. That's human depravity. And even the way verse 6 is worded shows us that's what Eve's doing. The verse began, the woman saw that the tree was good. That, that's an echo of what we heard repeatedly in Genesis chapter 1. God's judgments in creation, he saw that it was good. And, and now, I think this is intentional in chapter 3. It's like the woman is taking the place of God and she saw that the tree was good for food even though God said it wasn't. This man thinking he can get for himself more good than God offers. In defiance of his infinite grace and, and lavish generosity. And friends, this stings, but this is what we do every time we sin. Every time we are at some level questioning the goodness of God's commands. And and we're deciding that we know better what is good, what would be good for us in that moment at least. And it's a kind of God-replacing moral autonomy. So, So we need to repent far more deeply than just, God, I'm sorry I ate that fruit that one time. No, no, God, I'm deeply sorry for lifting myself up in my heart above you even as the trusted judge of good and evil in this case. And for, and, and for doing that because I doubted the goodness of what you had already said. And therefore for, for being ungrateful for all of your generous, amazing grace and all the evidences that you've given me that you are good that I decided wasn't enough in that moment. And you know, God is so good that He welcomes all sinners who come to Him with that kind of mournful humility and lowliness of spirit, and He forgives them on the basis of the gift of His Son. And then by His Spirit, He he remakes these repenters and, and enables them once again to taste and see that God is good. And teaches them to to call out with the psalmist to God, God, you are my exceeding joy. Uh, Satan told the man and woman when they ate that their eyes would be opened. They would see their wonderful new godlike status, their knowledge. But, But the Bible shows us that their eyes were opened, but only to see the shame and guilt of what they had done. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So they realize, they realize, oh, we've been had. Verse 13, Eve says, the serpent deceived me. 
He was lying when he made me think I needed to rebel against God to secure some good that God was holding back. They realized they themselves were not good anymore. And if you know the story of Genesis, the next few chapters, there's just an avalanche of sin and suffering. All humanity. So friends, in light of the biblical view of man, you should not be surprised when people do bad things. And you should not be surprised when you find, even in your own heart, desires and thoughts that are wrong and that are contrary to what God has graciously told us is good. But understand who you are biblically, why that is, and and don't follow them. Believe that God is good, especially because of the gospel, and follow His word. The Bible explains where where this depravity comes from, but the Bible also explains the way out. It's not anything outside of us that makes us sin, ultimately. It's what happens inside of us, our, our inborn unbelief and proud rebellion against God. And on the flip side, it's not anything we can do from within ourselves to rescue us from this. The Bible says we're not good. How can someone who's not good save himself from not goodness? No, it's what God has done in Jesus Christ, outside of us, for us, that can save us. Grace. Now we have to move things to a close here. Uh, I've, I've told you already of the good news of God's redemption, but I want you to be more deeply convinced of it. And so I want you to see how God's redeeming goodness came to man immediately after the fall. God didn't need any time to cool off. He didn't need to regain His graciousness. He never lost His goodness. Right away, we see our last main point, God's redeeming goodness. And I have to make this quick, so let me just list some things for you. You can spend more time looking at later. Verse 8, when man sinned, God knew what had happened, but still He came back for them looking for them. Verses 9 through 13, God asks them a series of questions. Of course, he already knows the answer. He's inviting self-examination and confession and repentance. Verse 15, especially important, God promises a Savior who will crush the head of the serpent and so lead man out of the sin and death that Satan had led man into. Verse 20, it seems God gave Adam faith to believe this good news. He expresses hope that grace and life will be their ultimate end and not just sin and death. Verse 21, God replaces those pitiful fig leaves that Adam and Eve made to cover the shame of their sin, and the Lord makes a better covering, garments of skin, and He clothes them. Then, verses 22 through 24, God sends man out of Eden and he bars the way back to the tree of life so that Adam and Eve don't eat that fruit in their fallen condition and and live forever in a a state of satanic rebellion. It's really amazing. When you think about it, Adam and Eve walk out of the Garden of Eden with a promise of redemption to take with them. 
God did not let humanity go a single day fallen in sin without a promise to hope in that he would send a Savior. That's how good God is. There was not a single moment of human history outside of Eden without a gospel there with them. Brothers and sisters, God is good. Unbounded goodness in both creation and redemption. So believe that He knows what's good. Believe that He's telling you the truth about what's good. That He gives you what's good. That He knows is good for you specifically. Believe His heart is not to withhold. And the one that you need to be suspicious of is yourself. Not Him. But believe that God's, God's, uh, what God tells you about you is true. And He tells you this not to make you feel bad about yourself, but to do good to you. Learn to distrust your own moral intuitions that are contrary to his word because mankind is depraved and because God is good. And, and interpret all of life, all of humanity, all of your own life through this uh, anthropological lens, the biblical view of man, that in the beginning God made man good in his likeness, but man made himself evil by doubting God's goodness and reaching for a wrongful likeness to God. But then God sent His Son who humbly came in the likeness of sinful flesh to save us and bring us back to the tree of life in the paradise of God, the book of Revelation says, so that God can lavish His goodness on us again as He desires for His glory and our joy in him forever and ever. God, we praise you. We have we have treated you so poorly in response to all your goodness to us and you uh, won't stop being good to us. God, thank you for your everlasting goodness. Thank you for giving us Christ for giving us your spirit in Christ. God, and I thank you for your promise that, that you not only forgive us, but your promise to restore goodness in us, that your spirit already is making us more good. We thank you that, that your word says you have prepared good works for us to walk in, even in this life. God, thank you for dignifying us in that that way, by the Spirit, again. God, I pray that you would help us uh, protect our hearts from the uh, deception of the devil, that you are a God who withholds good. Help us to, to trust you more fully so that we can live more obediently and joyfully for your glory and for the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whom we have every blessing. Amen.